Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins. As a reminder, the podcast format has changed slightly to the way we used to do it. We now start with the miscellaneous emails we got during the week and the questions that are a little bit more open-ended because the feedback we've received so far is that that's the far more interesting part of the podcast. Put that right up front. After we go through those, we'll go through the course updates, things that are happening on the Mandarin Blueprint Method video course currently as of today and then we'll go into some specific input that came in from the course whether that be a mnemonic scene to learn a chinese character a suggestion for a mnemonic element or uh, any other sort of specifically course related questions we'll say till the end and as always if you'd like to skip around the podcast you want to know right you want to go right to the course updates or you want to go right to some other part of the podcast we put the timestamps below in the show notes so as for the questions that came in this week the first is a very interesting email that came in from a fellow named Michael Murphy Pull this up here. He says, Luke and Phil, I've stated in comments on the website that you guys have done and are doing a magnificent job. I so appreciate your awesome work. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate your saying so. I worked for and with Jerry Lucas, the former famed NBA All-Star and author of The Memory Book with Harry Lorraine. That's pretty cool. Back in the late 1970s, I traveled the world with Jerry and on my own, teaching his method to a lot of people. What you guys have done is comparable to what Steve Jobs did from the time that the first Apple computer was introduced until what it has become today. I don't think it's any exaggeration to make that comparison. So I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, although I greatly appreciate the sentiment. And the reason why is just because even if Mandarin Blueprint is as wildly successful as we could imagine, it becomes the the gold standard for how to learn Chinese. It's still just in the realm of learning Chinese, whereas, uh, of course, Steve Jobs and his inventions at Apple are, uh, well, they're worldwide. Uh, But nonetheless, though, I still appreciate the sentiment. It's very high praise. While traveling the world and making presentations, I had a lot of time with Jerry one-on-one. I also lived at his ranch in Northern California. We did, on average, about $17,000 for every two-day, roughly 10 hours cumulative. Wow. Uh, Jerry would peel off three grand in my pocket every time we'd exceed 15,000 gross for the event. I was barely 20 years old at the time. Looking to finish my college education, it was a lot of money for me and helped me pay for my college later. We did good, but never took it to the level you guys have. Well, the way that you're describing that, we ser- <laughs> I would certainly like to make $3,000 in two days. We're not quite at that level yet, but I see your point. You're saying you haven't taken the mnemonic uh, sort of system to that level. Here are two thoughts I want to share. We debated whether or not creating your own stories, or as we call them here at Mandarin Blueprint, uh, movie scenes, were actually substantially more effective rather than having them made for you, like like you guys did in teaching Shi. So what he's referring to there is that when we teach the character Shi at the very beginning of the course, we provide the entire scene for you uh, because you don't know the method yet, so you wouldn't be able to create it very easily without us giving you a full example. So that's what he's referring to there. It is a fact that creating your own scenes is more powerful and effective. However, having them made for you is still far above conventional learning methods as you proved with this one character. What if there were actually a cartoon or virtual reality scene actually cast with real actors, scenes, props, actions, etc.? I realize that this would cost a lot of money to do in addition to a tremendous amount of work. You would simply teach the basics as you did in level one and then have students to watch the short movie depicting the scene with all the props. 
Jerry and I actually talked about something like this back in the late 1970s. Of course, we didn't possess the tech that's available today. I'll respond to that first thought uh, and before I read his second um, comment. So uh, this is a, a debate that Luke and I also had. So when you were uh, saying that, that you and Jerry Lucas had that debate, I was like, yep, Luke and I also <laughs> went through this exact thing. And, you know, what it came down to really is that I mean, there's so that we the main considerations we were having was basically what are the resources available to us and what's actually true about uh, long term memory. So there, are, if there are about three thousand Chinese characters to learn, which you know in and of itself takes a long time just to build the materials for it. We've only built the materials so far for one thousand five hundred thirty characters, and so the idea of then having you know full actors doing all three thousand scenes. I mean, you know, hey, if Mandarin Blueprints around for like twenty years or something, I could see us maybe doing that at some point. But it fundamentally just came down to resources. We didn't have the resources to do that, and. The fact is, you're right. It is more effective to make your own scenes because if you are the generator of the mnemonic device, then the elements of the scene that are going to enter into your mnemonic device are going to be related specifically to you, which is something we can't possibly create. So we can say you can have your aunt Muriel there and you can have the prop be the specific toy box that you had as a kid and the smells from it and the memories from it that are very potent because they're actually from your life. And that's something we find to be such a powerful uh, skill to have and also universally applicable. It's not something that's only applicable to Chinese. So if you get used to being able to search your brain for that particular mnemonic device that is relevant to you and your personal life and your uh, actual lived experience then that is something you could apply to learning anything. It doesn't have to be specifically just Chinese. And so because we want to help people not only learn Chinese characters, we want them also to be able to know how to do these mnemonic skills. If we give them the scene, while it is true that it might make it so that they learn Chinese characters a little bit faster, maybe, it's still uh, not teaching them the skill on their own. Now, Obviously, you could say that maybe they would learn it by osmosis if they saw 3,000 scenes that we made, but uh, then you run into the problem of resources, which we, at the moment anyway, do not have uh, the resources available. Still just trying to get into the black as a company right now, so it's uh, we'll hopefully get there, and then maybe at some point when we're um, dominating the market for Chinese learning, uh, we'll have the resources to hire Brad Pitt. All right, so here's... Uh, Michael's second thought. My second thought for you guys especially is, if this whole process could be reversed from learning English to Chinese to learning Chinese to English, you guys would be national heroes in China. The market is vast and parents pay tons of money to educate their kids in English. I actually live in China today and own an English training center in Henan province. I know the market here is, uh, uh, the market here in China would be amazing for such a program. I also know uh, the amount of money, time, and effort is for doing such here, and it would be an enormous undertaking. You guys are young. I'm 61 years old. My school produces students that are Ivy League level. By the time they finish high school, I employ mnemonics in our pedagogy uh, to a very limited degree. Just a couple thoughts. Keep doing the amazing work and, that you're doing. It is powerful and effective. Well, that's certainly something that we might consider doing, uh, but the only way I would consider doing an English... or yeah, so we're going from English to Chinese, Chinese to English. The only way I would consider doing that is if I were working on it in an advisory role. I think Luke probably feels similarly because 
ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't care as much about teaching English as I do about teaching Chinese. I'm not as passionate about it. So uh, I could see, you know, maybe Mandarin Blueprint uh, in the future someday saying, okay, this series of mnemonic techniques could be totally used uh, and applied to English. So let's see if we can pull that off uh, from an advisory capacity if somebody else took the lead who was a bit more passionate about teaching English. Because it's just to be honest, I don't really uh, get that excited about teaching English, especially because English is far less consistent than Chinese. One of the things that makes me so passionate about Chinese is that it's like I want people to discover how uh, logical the language is and how interesting it is to uh, sort of think in a language where the rules are far more consistent. Whereas English is a great language. It's very cool, but it's so hard to give somebody a consistent rule because the rules get broken so much because English has about six source languages. And as a result, you can't sort of consistently apply rules i before e except after c and these 30 exceptions over here so you know there's sort of that um there's sort of that problem with teaching english okay next question uh comes from this is a kind of a practical question that came from the mandarin blueprint community uh and speaking of the mandarin blueprint community i'd like to talk a little bit about how the uh each week we want to add a, a segment to the podcast and that segment is essentially about uh what just a question we want to ask the people who are on the course or just interested in learning Chinese. And then we're going to talk about it on the podcast and maybe turn it into a blog post or something that could be helpful to uh, people who are looking to learn Chinese. And so uh, I'll post these questions in the Mandarin Blueprint community. And so the first question we actually want to ask is essentially what triggered you to start learning Chinese? What was the inspiration for you to say, okay, of all the things I could do in the world, I'm going to try to learn Chinese now. And so, you know, for me, that was that I had already moved to China. So it kind of has to relate to why I went to China. Originally, I went to China because I had some friends here who had discovered that you could work, you know, maybe 25 hours a week and easily live uh, at the time they were in Beijing. And they were like, you have this extra time and you can do things you wanted. At the time, I wanted to, uh, focus on a few personal things that were, you know, working 50 hours a week in America wasn't giving me too much time to do. And so I was like, okay, so I could move to Beijing, teach English for 25 hours a week and have all this extra free time uh, to pursue some projects. And that was my original reason for going, which it has nothing to do with China or Chinese culture or the Chinese language. But then after being in China for two years, uh, which, you know, some people don't realize that about, um, the fact that I didn't actually start learning Chinese until I had already been in China for two years. Uh, and so what triggered me to want to start learning Chinese was moving to Chengdu, which is where I currently live now. And the people are so cool. And I really wanted to know, you know, what's a conversation like with somebody here? Because I respect the culture so much. The culture is very, um, welcoming and tolerant and like warm. It's not just tolerant, it's like warmly tolerant. And so I was like, wow, what is, undergirding such a culture that people are, uh, you know, sort of being so warm, being so accepting of this person from the outside and curious. And it was really um, that that kind of made me go, okay, I want to be able to speak to people in their own language. And that triggered me to go, okay, it's time to really start studying in earnest. I kind of studied not in earnest um, the two years previously, just did bits and bobs here and there. And then finally, uh, that was the 
trigger to make me go, okay, I'm going to take this really seriously. And if, of course, I had the secondary and tertiary uh, motivations like, oh, uh, I'll be able to easily get a job if I can speak Chinese and I could always be a translator and stuff like that. Uh, it's funny, after I learned Chinese, I'm now like, I will never be a translator. Uh, but, you know, that was my initial thinking anyway. So that's the question. Tell us what is it that triggered you to start to learn Chinese as opposed to any other discipline of academic study. All right, great. So here's a question that came in from the community this week from Stephanie Stone. She says, good morning from Beijing. Where do you record your scripts? I like to have everything in one place, so I wonder if I ought to record my script in Anki movie review cards. Uh, what has been helpful for you all? Well, my suggestion to Stephanie was just to record it right in the notes field. So if you're in the browse uh, section of Anki and you select the deck and maybe also while holding command, select the movie review cards, you can see all the movie review cards for that particular level or set of levels. And there's a notes field, which has usually like a, a source lesson and the Anki tutorials link, but you can just add more uh, information to that field if you wish. But remember, this is not required. If you're very good at a mnemonic and you make the mnemonic um, sufficiently memorable, then there's no problem with uh, remembering it without writing it down. Now, sometimes people like to write down like a little uh, quick note about it. It's not the full scene because, again, if you write down the full scene in great detail, that can take up a lot of time. And then you're kind of defeating the purpose of being quick with learning the characters. But you could also just go... You know, uh, Sean Connery in the kitchen, childhood home, throws razor blade at bowling pins or something like that. And then even though that's not the full scene with all the special effects and all of the uh, camera angles and all of that, it still triggers the thought. And then you can rem remember the scene from there. But remember, this is not a requirement. But if you want to do it in the notes field of the movie review cards. Next, we have another email. This one from Lily Woodhouse. She says, hello, Phil. I'm so excited about the Mandarin blueprint method. I used to go to classes, use textbooks, have exams, but as I needed to move, I wasn't able to continue with my classes and even tried to learn by myself, but I didn't succeed. One of my goals is to be able to read books in Chinese because I love books and to talk with my friends back in China. And as I am working on my own blog, I imagine it in Spanish, English, and the wow factor would be Chinese. And maybe, once I succeed, I'll be able to apply to a different job opportunity. I hope you have a great week ahead. Well, Lily, I love this um, series of, this is kind of, interestingly enough, this is sort of um, almost answering the question I just brought up about the, um, in the Mandarin Blueprint community. But, uh, so what she's saying here, you know, I've noticed, we've, Luke and I have both noticed that at the moment, our main source of new customers is people who have tried something else, like a Duolingo or maybe Chinese Pod or something like that, and not found it to be uh, just not quite good enough. It's not that there wasn't something about it that was good, but that they didn't find that it was getting them to fluency, or at least that they didn't feel like they were making progress. That's a huge part of it. It's like... If you do a Duolingo lesson or a Chinese pod lesson, you are making progress, technically speaking, but you might not feel like it. So like that's an important uh, element to it because it doesn't really matter if you are making progress. If you don't feel like it, you're not going to be likely to keep going. So this is another situation. In this case, what she used to do was classes and textbooks and exams. 
and that gave her some structure and so that but then she had to move away and so she tried to do it by herself and didn't succeed our purpose is to give you structure but not have the bad teaching methods of a classroom and not be quite so structured. It's like it's structured in the sense that it's linear and follow these steps, but there's a lot of your personality that goes into it. It's fun. You get to uh, you know shoot these little movie scenes and you get to follow a curriculum that shows you exactly where your progress is. And so uh, I'm sure that you're going to have a great time with the course, Lily, and you'll definitely be able to read books, no problem. Like that's the, the um, you know, core sort of, strength of Mandarin Blueprint is that we'll get you learning Chinese characters like nothing else, but learning Chinese characters helps you with speaking a ton. And the reason why is because, and I've made this point before, but it's always worth reiterating. Reading is the fastest way to acquire language. And so if you're able to read a lot, you're going to see vocabulary and build up your passive vocabulary. Now, what does that do? What that means is that when you're in a situation of uh, speaking, the word you need comes to your head faster because you've been reading a lot. So it is true that I suppose if you're not speaking at all, that your pronunciation might suffer a little bit. And so there's that phenomenon of sort of shooting and missing uh, that'll happen from time to time where you go to say something and you just, when you say it, because maybe you're trying to rush or maybe you're trying to, you know, just um, usually it's because you're rushing, you will say it a little bit off, like you'll get the tones wrong or you'll just flub the word because your uh, mouth muscles aren't trained up enough, in which case, yeah, you should do some more practicing of speaking. But that's just the process of activating the language. And activating the language is far more fun and quick than building up passive vocabulary. And the fastest way to build up passive vocabulary is read, read, read. And so like you can imagine that you you enter some scenario and you need to speak to somebody about, you know, where do I go uh, pay my gas bill? And if you don't read a lot, then it might be lost on you which words to use. But if you do read a lot, then when the time comes to actually actually go speak, the lag time between thinking about what you want to say and saying it will be shorter. And so in your native language, that lag time is so short that you can't even perceive it. It's like, it's almost as if you're discovering what you want to say as you're saying it, but that's not the case with your second language. With your second language, you usually have a little bit of lag time that you can perceive to some degree. And that is something that, uh, you know, you're going to want to diminish. And that's exactly what reading does. It diminishes that lag time because you've seen the words in context enough that you're able to, um, you know, sort of it just pops into your head faster. It's, it's something that just is a phenomenon of having read a lot. It's not a thing you can try to do. It just happens as a result of, it's a natural phenomenon that comes as a result of reading all the time. So for sure, you're going to get better at reading and that's going to in turn make you better at speaking. And of course, you want to keep practicing your pronunciation uh, from the pronunciation mastery course and those cards. And then when you do your sentences, you want to try to shadow and um, you know read them out loud and things like that. And then of course, when you get, enough passive vocabulary, having a language exchange is a great way of spending your time. But ultimately, uh, the word popping into your head fast enough comes from input. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from speaking a lot. Speaking a lot is the step after the input. And that's always important to reiterate. Next, we have an email from Guillaume. Guillaume says, hello, Luke and Phil. I need your advice on the audio part of learning Chinese. I know that your work is based on the reading and written sk skills, but still, as I just mentioned in the previous uh, uh, answer, reading and writing does end up contributing to 
your listening and speaking skills, but I'll keep going. I started your course one week ago from scratch with no background in reading. Okay, so that's a, let's remember that he said that. Okay, I started the Pimsler lessons one month ago, and I only did 10 lessons until now. I've only done two pronunciation mastery units, but I already know that my weakness will be the listening comprehension and oral expression. So I'm going to stop reading here and say, I already, like, Guillaume is, is setting his fate before it happens. So this is where a little Eastern philosophy will come in uh, handy. So Guillaume says here, uh, I know, I already know that my weakness will be the listening comprehension and oral expression. And it's, uh, I just, it's one of those things where I'm like, how do you know? You haven't gone far enough to know that that's going to be the case. And so worrying about it now is essentially wasted energy. So, you know, in a lot of Eastern philosophy, whether it's, uh, uh, Buddhism or Taoism, one of the focuses is that, first of all, the present moment is something, it's the only thing we ever really have. And any thought about the future is sort of taking up the present moment with those, it's it's grabbing your attention away. Well, I shouldn't say it is a part of the present moment. Those thoughts are a part of that present moment. But the question is, is that how you want to spend the present moment considering that it may never come to pass. It may be, Guillaume, that you end up being great at listening comprehension. And I wouldn't be surprised if you're using the Mandarin blueprint method. Uh, and so you're kind of uh, pigeonholing yourself into a specific path. So my recommendation right off the bat would be don't assume what your strengths and weaknesses are going to be yet. I thought I was terrible at acquiring language before I learned Chinese. And here I am, having succeeded in learning, quote unquote, the hardest language in the world. So I would recommend not pigeonholing yourself by saying, this is going to be my weakness. Well, you don't know what your weakness is going to be yet. And maybe you're not going to have that many weaknesses. So let's just keep that in mind. All right. Your method is so effective that I wonder if I shouldn't postpone the study of the characters. The reason is that it is going too fast to learn new characters and my listening skills will soon be lagging behind. I wouldn't want that my brain rely only on the sight and not the sound anymore. Uh, because in that case, what would happen when I will hear an unknown sound? If my brain is only used to focus on the sight for decoding a character... I won't be able to relate to the other surrounding sounds of what I heard and be lost then. As Luke experimented the Pimsler method, what would he advise? Okay, so this is another situation, and I'm, Guillaume, I apologize for giving you the same advice sort of over and over again, but you're, I love how analytical you are. You're a very analytical guy. You're like, well, if this happens, then that would happen, and that could cause me to be in a, have this huge problem later. And the reason why that's not the right way to think about it is because you haven't spent enough time in Anki. Like you said, you only did the first two units of the pronunciation mastery, which means it's at the end of unit two that we finally start giving Anki cards. And in each Anki card for the Mandarin Blueprint method, there is always native audio along with the visual element of the character, including in the vocabulary and then later on in the sentences and then later on in the long-form stories. There's always native audio that's recorded on a condenser mic that's super clear and crisp, right? That's easy to mimic. And there's only 420 syllables in the entire language. So... One of the things that is frustrating reading this is that you're assuming that that those things that we took into account when we build the built the method aren't going to work. And I'm like, bro, they're going to work. 
just you have to keep going though. You can, you're way too early to be worrying about this stuff. Like so, if you're at character four hundred and you're still having this concern, then I'm like, okay, what's up? Let, maybe something's wrong with the method. Maybe there's something we can fix here. But if you're only at the end of unit two of pronunciation mastery, which means that you haven't learned the entire pronunciation of the language yet, and you have, uh, um, you're very early in the Mandarin blueprint method. The best advice I can give you is you need to go further and try not to overthink. Uh, I called the podcast two weeks ago, Don't Overthink, because of this very these very sets of questions. So my recommendation right off the bat would just be make sure that you trust the method for a little bit. Or at least, you know, I I can understand if, if somebody says to you, hey, trust the method. And you're like, well, why should I trust the method? Uh, to some degree, I'm asking you to take a leap of faith. I mean, like... It's more like a hop of faith because it's not going to be that long before you realize, oh, uh, my concerns never came about. Like the concerns I had never ended up being a problem. But still, my recommendation would be take a hop of faith, follow our instructions, and keep going until you finish the pronunciation mastery and have made it at least to character 105 of the Mandarin Blueprint method before you cast judgments about how it's going to go because you don't know how it's going to go yet. So I would recommend that... Uh, you take your time with the method for now, and if you don't understand why something is the case, maybe table that until you get to that point. Now, if you get to character 105 and you're just filled with questions about how things are going to go, I'll be happy to address them again. But just like bear, bear that in mind is that so many of the questions, I'm looking at it from the top of the mountain, and you're at the bottom of the mountain, I can see you down there. And you're like, well, what if I go down this path or what if I go down this path? And I'm like, well, we built the path for you. So I promise you, you just follow that path. You're going to end up in the place you want to be. You're going to end up uh, up here with me. All right. So just a little more here. As Luke experimented with the Pimsler method, what would be his advice? Um, I know that Luke is a fan of those sort of listen and repeat programs. I hate them and uh, you know, I don't really like them very much. But Luke's pronunciation is a bit more uh, native than mine. So perhaps, uh, you know, they're worth continuing to do. I find them super boring. Um, your next question is, should I carry on with learning both the characters and practicing with Pimsler method at the same time? I mean, Pimsler method is like so different from the Mandarin blueprint method that I would recommend just using Pimsleur if you feel like doing something a bit more passive because Pimsleur is just like listen and repeat. So it's a bit – it doesn't – I mean, sure, it requires you to actually speak out loud, but it's not requiring you to come up with any kind of creative thinking, whereas at least with the Mandarin Blueprint method, we're telling you, okay, imagine some things in your mind. So if you're feeling a little bit more like just tell me what to do Chinese lesson, then do some Pimsleur, but base it on your feeling is my – uh, recommendation. I'd say make sure that you don't have any zero days on the Mandarin Blueprint method because you want to keep your uh, uh, pro keep your momentum going. But I would say if you feel like doing something a bit more passive, then you can do Pimsleur. If I understood you well, you were saying that one uh, day there will be the merge of the two methods in one he one's head. Sound plus reading. Sure. Uh, when should I go and check with a teacher for audio corrections? Uh, when, when will I finish, when I finish the Pimsleur lessons, I listened to Phil telling that one could be stuck if the focus is only on the audio part. Can you tell me more about it? So that, what the point I'm making there is that because there's only 420 syllables in the language, if you don't do any characters, you're diminishing your brain's ability to recognize patterns. So your brain has uh, a natural language pattern recognition module within it that has evolved over at least 200,000 years, if not longer, if you consider body language. And so 
this pattern recognition, you want to give it as many disparate objects as possible so that it can start to find the commonality. So if you imagine that there is sound, that's a big one. Sound is huge. But then there's also context of grammar. And then there's also a visual element like these characters look nothing like each other. You're giving your brain more opportunities to make connections. And because Chinese only has 420 syllables compared to 16,000 in English, is a, you know, so you get an idea of how much different it is, by only focusing on pronunciation and not doing any characters, you're handicapping yourself massively for your brain's natural pattern recognition module. And so if you start with just pronunciation, there's nothing wrong with starting that way, but you want to get as quickly into learning characters as possible because that's giving your brain an advantage. It's helping your brain come up with more possible connections to the characters. And remember, because you're using a full mnemonic scene that incorporates the pronunciation of the character into the mnemonic, that's another layer of connection. So one of the things you're saying is, should I maybe not start with characters? No, no, start with characters. Start with characters. Start with characters. I'm only getting that across as the Chinese would say, "我还是那句话." I'll say again that sentence is that the characters are such a huge leg up towards giving your brain the ability to recognize patterns and then come up with its rules. So this process is largely unconscious. You read a lot, you listen a lot, your brain figures it out. And it's an unconscious process, so you just have to feed yourself the right comprehensible input and it's harder to get comprehensible input without learning the characters it's really really tough and uh you know i was just having a conversation with my friend and she's been trying to learn chinese and she's funny because she's like i don't want to do mandarin blueprint because you know you're my friend and i don't want to bother you about it and i don't want to you know like um sort of mix friendship and professionalism i'm like okay fine uh but she's struggling she's struggling to get past that just audio phase because she's like i'm just going to do pinyin and audio first and she's it you know she's multilingual and she's like you know i learned french i learned italian she's a spanish native speaker she learned english and she's like but i can't seem to get chinese and i'm like well i know why it's because you're not doing enough uh of the um you're not doing enough of the characters you're not doing any of the characters so it's it's a handicap still a couple of questions here from guillaume at the end of this email Oh, he just says, thanks in advance. You can make a podcast answer if you think that there is interest to others. Well, I'm sure other people will find this interesting, Guillaume. I do like these questions because these questions are, ex- I mean, I must admit, it's a little bit like me on on steroids, how I was at the beginning. But I am analytical like that. And I do go, well, wait, how is this going to work? And how is that going to work? And so is this really going to help me? And if I do this, couldn't I just do it this way? And it's completely reasonable to think about that. And, you know, I mean, if it's of any interest to you, I might share a little bit of my bona fides about this. I, you know, did 3,000 characters with the mnemonic method like this. I got a degree in Chinese from Sichuan University. I passed the HSK-6 after only two years of study. And then we built this entire curriculum based on uh, a lot of the comprehensible input uh, theories, the input hypothesis by Stephen Krashen, and, of course, building our own mnemonic system that is actually patent pending. So, you know, I'm not saying... Uh, that you have to trust me, but I'm saying there's some plenty of reason to trust me. So hopefully that'll be uh, of use to you moving forward. So 
uh, let's move to the next email. And this email comes from Craig Cavanaugh, who is uh, a former uh, live student. He was here in Chengdu. Jeez, uh, I guess it's got to be over two years ago now. And um, he got in touch because he's been keeping up with the Mandarin Blueprint Method, especially since the expansions. And uh, there's a great little email here. So he says, uh, hi, guys. Thanks for your email. I hope that everything is going well at Mandarin Blueprint. It seems you've been super busy with all of the new content, but it's looking great. Well, thank you, Craig. I really like the website and found it much more accessible and easier to follow than the original course. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, it's not that we're surprised by that, but it, uh, you know, obviously when we were teaching the course live, it was, uh, it was just, you know, we were very, it's the nascent form of Mandarin Blueprint. Um, Let's see here. It's great that I can keep track of my progress and quickly get back to where I was. The community comments and links to the podcast are great for extra information and help on some difficult uh, difficult to visualize props and scenes. So that's great to hear. I was making pretty good progress when I got back into it and quickly caught up. However, the last few months I had been traveling again and found it difficult to assign time to new content. That's pretty much what happened last time and is usually due to not having regular, steady access to the internet and not having my computer with me most of the time. It's also pretty tough to keep up a routine when things are a bit erratic, so I've probably missed some chances I could have I could have used to study. I've still kept up with my reviews every day as I have Anki on my phone, so at least I should be uh, stagnating and not regressing. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. I was hoping the app would solve some of this as I would then have easy access on my phone when I'm out and about, but it also requires an internet connection. It would be awesome to have some sort of offline version for your stuff where I can download a level and then work through it, but I'm no programmer, so I'm sure it would be a lot easier said than done. So, it, you know, Craig, it, it really just comes down to, uh, you know, it, if... Um, the internet is a big place, and it's a, a bit of a Wild West situation, and um, making it easy for somebody to just take our content and portray it as theirs is not something that we want to do. I mean, like, sure, we, anything you put on screen, somebody could screenshot or they could screen record a video, and then they could organize it and put it together and then try to sell it as their own thing. But the problem is if we just say, okay, here, you can download this video, somebody could easily just download the whole thing and then... Uh, you know, put it out there and it's like, we're not yet a company that's even like quite profitable yet. So like if we can't, if we make it easy for somebody to just steal the content, uh, that's a bad move. And it's just, you know, from a business perspective, it's not that uh, we wouldn't want to make it easier for our customers. We would, but it's just kind of, you know, uh, unfortunately when you have the anonymity of the internet, it's quite possible that people will take advantage of that. And that's, you know, unfortunately that's what it is. And as for the app, the app has been, uh, people have been having trouble accessing the foundation course. And, you know, we kind of jumped the gun a little bit on talking about the app. The app is, uh, uh, was released by Kajabi, which is the uh, course platform that we use to upload our videos. And so they're like a, they're kind of like an online course maker. And so we uh, bought a membership to Kajabi um, a couple of years ago, or I guess a year and a half ago. And we use that to upload pronunciation mastery and the Mandarin blueprint method. And then one day they told us, Hey, we made an app. And so, you know, you can, if people can download this app and access the course, but the problem is our course is huge compared to the average Kajabi course. And the foundation course has over 2000 lessons and it's just too big for Kajabi to load it on their app. So, and the problem is that they're the developers of the app. We didn't, 
like this is a surprise as much of a surprise to us as it probably was to you guys that they now have an app and so we've told them we've been like hey our foundation course doesn't seem to be running but we have no ability to try to fix the problem ourselves all we can do is tell them and hope that they fix it i'm sure that one day they'll fix it but it's like uh we're not necessarily their top priority because they have lots of different people who use their products. So unfortunately for the app, if you, if it's not working for you, you're going to have to go back to watching it on the uh, website, but still even the app does require internet, internet access. Anyway, continuing with Craig's email. I was recently in Taiwan for a month, so I was getting a lot of other input and really improved my listening there. I noticed a huge difference to when I was first in China and could barely grasp the language. It was a bit confusing with the whole traditional versus simplified Chinese, but I managed it. Accents are still tough, but you get used to the, uh, but get used to it. And I found something similar to in Sichuan, which is of course the, uh, Chengdu is the capital of Sichuan. Uh, like for example, the ZH and SH of Mandarin, the Zhu and Sh become Z and S. So uh, it's kind of interesting how like. Here they'll be like, um, so like, becomes or like, uh, becomes right? Sort of like they'll change like these little things, and clearly it's related, but it's sort of dialectical how they change it. And so, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you get used to any dialect pretty quickly. I tried speaking and didn't really run into too many issues of misunderstanding. The only difficulty was when I tried a full-blown conversation and really struggled with grammar, but I need more practice for basic fluency on that point. Yeah, you needed to get more sentences, more uh, input. Like, once you reach a point of knowing enough characters, your day should just be about, like, get more sentences, get more paragraphs, get more stories. Just keep pumping things into the, uh, the old uh, comprehensible input module. It also helped me when I went to Japan and could understand some kanji. There were a surprising amount of times where I was able to use my limited knowledge to get by. You know, I, I had the same experience when I went to Japan. Uh, it's always great when an unexpected situation shows you how far you've come and why you're doing something. I completely agree. I had a couple of friends come and visit me in Beijing uh, when I didn't really know that much Chinese. But because they knew absolutely zero, I realized, oh, I actually have learned a lot. And then, of course... Uh, that comes up all the time now. Um, you take the way it works with acquiring languages when you get good at it, you quickly renormalize how it feels, and then you'll do something like easily have a conversation with the uh, coffee barista, and then somebody next to you who doesn't speak Chinese will be like, "Wow, that's amazing!" And you're like, "Is it? Oh, I guess it is, but I, it hasn't felt amazing to me for years, right?" Anyway, the content is great and just keeps getting better, better and better. So, thanks a lot for all of your hard work. Regards, Craig. Happy to uh, happy to help. And Craig actually had a follow-up email after that. He says, uh, I also forgot to mention that I'm having some difficulty trying to remember the conversation connectors. I do the Anki deck every day like the others, but often I uh, but often have to press the red button for a lot of the sentences. Anki even tried hiding some of them because I'd forgotten them so much and they are ruining my stats. That's called leeching. Yeah, Ch uh, Anki basically says, uh, you're not remembering this card, so it's not worth even, you know, basically it's above your level. Uh, I think it's because most of them are completely fresh and so have nothing that I can link them to to help remember them. I'm also learning them in isolation as I'm not speaking to anyone to try and use them. So I'm sure that's not helping. 
Do you have any tips on how, uh, or should I just rely on Anki and hope they'll eventually stick in there? I remember you saying it's not an important deck to begin with. Would it be better to concentrate on that deck later in the course, or maybe when I'm in a position to speak more? Thanks a lot, Craig. This is a great question. So the conversation connectors are sort of, to some degree, inherently, mm, I guess you could say, they're inherently not easily connectable to other things because the whole point of them is that they're kind of empty. The point, they're just sort of like conversation fillers. They're fillers. Like it's like, well, to tell you the truth, in in reality, the situation is, you know, you're just sort of saying stuff that is giving your brain time to catch up. And since you're just giving your brain time to catch up, it's uh, it, it's not something that you're easily able to memorize right off the bat. And so my suggestion to Craig was basically go ahead and don't worry about it for now. Because if you wait a little bit longer and you've gotten more sentences, you've gotten more paragraphs, you've gotten more stories into your repertoire, then the conversation connector will have more relevance to you because you'll be like, well, A, I know more characters now, so there's more likelihood that I'll understand it. But B, uh, I can potentially like imagine what I might say after it because I have a bit more context. So it's not just purely, uh, well, I think I'll say this thing... Um, you know, I think I'll say this thing that I saw in conversation connectors when there's nothing else that you have to say after it. It could be a little bit like, well, what's the point of this? But there's also, you know, there is the possibility of making connections to the individual conversation connectors. So like, um, means, uh, frankly, or to tell you the truth, right? It's sort of that speak, honest or true speech. So speak true speech, right? Frankly, uh, and so that one is an example where it's quite clear what the characters mean. So it's like, okay, I, I can follow that. And I can just sort of imagine somebody being kind of like putting on airs a little bit, like, well, frankly, to tell you the truth, I think, and it's just sort of got like, I, I don't know why, but that always worked. And the problem is that, you know, because there's nothing to that, really, just saying frankly, or to tell you the truth, there's really nothing to that. It's what, it's what you say after it that matters. I can understand how it's a little bit hard to remember them, but there's some degree of truth to if you just stick with Anki, it will eventually get in there. It's just a bit more rote-like. You know, you have to keep hitting, uh, you have to keep sending it back to the beginning. Uh, but that said, though, remember, there's lots of different potential mnemonics. There's a sound mnemonic, maybe the particular... Uh, conversation connector sounds like another part of Chinese, or it happens to sound like something in English, in which case you can make a connection, or there's something about the phrase that triggers an idea for you. So in the same way that when you're making your mnemonic scenes, you'll remember certain aspects of your life or certain triggers will come about. Uh, you could do the same thing with these different uh, conversation connectors. Just see if there's something there. And if there's nothing there, you can maybe just keep the card suspended and don't worry about it yet. So those would be my few suggestions about the conversation connectors. All right. Next, we have an email from Rosan Bishwakarma. And uh, apparently I referred to Rosan before as a, as a lady, but it's a, it's a fella. Um, Dear Luke and Phil, hope you were well. Thank you very much for your answer on the podcast a few weeks ago. By the way, I'm a guy. I know that, might, that my name might sound feminine. <laughs> my questions are, one, what is the timeline for the upcoming expansions? 
Two, is there any research on how many hours of reading it would take for it to feel more natural? And three, do you guys have experience with language exchanges and what are your thoughts? Okay. And then he says, I'm very satisfied with the course so far. I'm at around 800 characters. Well done. And 100% want to stick with it until the last character. That brings me to my first question. What is the timeline for the upcoming expansions? I understand that you have outlined everything until 1,500 characters, HSK5, I suppose, partly, uh, and that the next 1,000 characters are a huge project since that would effectively double the course. It seems like that is ultimately your goal, but given the other priorities, how high is the course expansion on the list? I really enjoy the course and just want to keep going with it and not use any less efficient method. So as for the last big expansion, are we talking about 10 months or 20 months? No need, no need to make big promises. I just want to know, in general what your plans are because my goal would be to learn around 2,500 to 3,000 in the next six to eight months. Yeah. So like, first of all, great question. And, uh, it's a really ringing endorsement. I really appreciate that you're, uh, saying that, you know, you, you really want to learn it our way. So like, if we, if we don't have it ready, you'll be disappointed because you'd have to learn it some other way. So that's, uh, a very ringing endorsement. I tell you, emails like that do motivate me a lot to want to keep up with the um, expansions. Um, the reality is this. We have many things that we're trying to do at the moment in that to improve the course as it already is. Now, some of those things are in process. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit more in the course updates. But, you know, we do have to take some time as this particular expansion finishes uh, to make some improvements to the course that we've been wanting to do, which we were putting on the back burner because of the expansion, you know? And so now there's still the part of me that, that says, I just get to 3000 characters. And then once you've gotten to 3000 characters, then go back and, you know, maybe we'll do that. But it's always a matter of building up the systems, gaining more resources. If we get more people on the course and we have more money to spend, then we can hire people to help us get some of this stuff done. Uh, I can tell you that the 1500 character expansion, the timeline for the actual 1500 uh, is probably another um, month to six weeks before it's entirely out. Because that's the other thing about it. the reality is that, you know, uh, even after we plan the next 1500 characters, which you're right, it would be doubling the size of the course. So the planning alone will probably take six months. Um, the actual like rolling it out takes a long time too, because, you know, you take, take, you know, take a look at one of the lessons and see how much goes into just one lesson. And each individual character sometimes has two or three lessons in it. So, um, each one lesson, you know, there's, uh, the text there's, that needs to be checked. There's the uh, thumbnail, there's, um, creating the actual lesson on the back end. There's just, there's just a lot of steps. And so, it's one of those things where it, you know, it's going to happen, but the timeline, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking closer to the 20 month, uh, uh, position there. So I'm afraid that, uh, if you were hoping to get to 3000 within six to eight months, you'll probably have to start using James Heisig's book, remembering the simplified hands to finish up. However, uh, you know, I will keep this email in my motivation box and maybe we'll get that done faster than, uh, than I was saying there, but that's, uh, you know, I really appreciate how much you like the course that it's like of concern to you. Like, oh, I want to make sure that I get, you know, to use your method. So thank you for that, Rosan. Now, next uh, question you're saying, or regarding the next question, you're saying reading is incredibly tiring. I would not even say that I am particularly slow at all, especially when I am familiar with the characters. However, it is very mentally exhausting to the point where I 
see it more as a chore rather than something I enjoy. If I had to take a guess, I probably have not seriously read Mandarin for more than 20 hours in total, so it makes sense for it to not be very easy yet. Is there any research on how many hours of reading it would take for it to feel more natural? Now, as as for specific research, I'm not sure, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, the first, you think about how many hours of reading you're going to do in Mandarin moving forward. It's going to be, you know, a lot more than 20. And as you get better at it, it becomes easier to read. And therefore, spending several hours reading is not as, as you say, taxing or mentally exhausting. It's kind of the nature of almost anything uh, that you're going to do when you first start it. It's most mentally exhausting at the beginning. And 20 hours still counts as the beginning. Uh, I don't know exactly how many hours. I can say that for me with the sentences... When I started to, I spent a lot of time on sentences and probably too much time compared to larger context, but I would just hit sentences every day. I would hundreds of sentences because once you have enough characters that, you know, once you get especially to 3000 characters, your life is about sentences in the, and obviously the more context around the sentences, the better, but you could think of it as I got to get loads of sentences into my brain. And when you just keep hitting them every day, it does get easier. There's no doubt about it. It does get easier. And so, um, you know, it's incredibly impressive that you're putting the, en the energy into it now. And, you know, to some degree, I will give this piece of advice though. Remember that sentences are infinite. There's infinite possible ways to put together the characters, you know, into grammatically correct sentences. So, if you don't quite get a sentence and you just don't like it for some reason, it's okay to suspend the card or skip it or whatever. It's fine because it's not like a character that's an essential uh, part of the individual. Um, like if you, if you don't learn a character, you're missing a part of Chinese. You know what I'm saying? But if you learn, if you don't learn an individual sentence, you're not missing a core element of the language, right? So just skip it. Toss it out. Throw it away. Don't worry about it. Like, like the sentence and understand the sentence. And so if you think of it that way, you can help yourself uh, not have such a taxing chore-like feeling to it. As a matter of fact, it's really important to protect your sense of enjoyment in your study. And so if you're starting to feel like it's a chore, start deleting stuff. Start going, I don't like this sentence, and just delete it. Uh, it's fine. Because the feeling is like, the feeling I have anyway is like, what if I leave it out? Am I going to miss something really important? And I'll like, I don't want to delete it because maybe I'll miss something important. But it's like, you're not going to stop reading sentences. So you're going to read a sentence that's that same grammatical structure later. Of course you are. Loads of times even. So I wouldn't worry too much about deleting cards. And if you feel like, oh, I need some more... Uh, you know, I need some more enjoyment in my study, then get rid of some cards. No problem. Now, uh, final section here. I've been trying to find language exchange partners and it is simply a disaster. I am living with a Taiwanese host family and I speak with her almost every night. Um, we talk about anything and everything and just randomly comes up. Death penalty, food standards, relationships, etc. And although I have to use Pleco sometimes, the conversations are fun and I find myself organically using new words. But when I'm with my language partner, I don't know how to approach it. It's usually very awkward. I feel uncomfortable. My Chinese is much worse. And there is nothing I, uh, we can really talk about. I don't really understand how anyone finds them useful. Do you guys have experience with language exchanges? And what are your thoughts? Um, 
And then, uh, as always, keep it up. You guys are really making this Chinese thing an 80% less frustrating journey. Cheers, Rosan. Well, um, so this is a, a good question. There are a lot of language exchange apps like Hello Talk and Tandem. And Tandem has this function in it that's like a topic creator. And you, it, there's like a randomized button. And you can kind of like keep clicking it until you, you find a topic. It's like, let's talk about what our childhoods were like. And it's like, no, nah, I don't want to talk about my childhood. Let's talk about how we cook dinner. No, nah, I don't really cook dinner. Let's talk about the NBA. Oh, I love the NBA. Oh, so let's talk about that. You know, th there's anything that you could imagine comes up in that random topic generator, which is great for, you know, just always having something to talk about. Um, and what's nice about these apps is there's always somebody there. And then if you, a big part of language exchanges is just having a good rapport. It sounds like you don't have a particularly good rapport with that last language partner, but with the apps, it's so quick to just go, all right, I wasn't really, really that into that person. So I'm just going to move on. And then when you find somebody you like, it's like, okay, make sure that you keep in touch with that one. Because it's like, when you have a rapport with somebody, that's the thing that makes conversation the easiest. Now, I will say this about language exchanges. Whatever uh, whatever you do, you must set a time that's going to be like, say it's you have a 30-minute language exchange. Okay, fine. 15 minutes of it is only Mandarin and 15 minutes is only you know English or whatever other language you're exchanging uh, because one of you is going to have a higher level than the other, right? And so the temptation, especially when you're first starting off and your level is relatively low, is going to be to go to the language of the person who's more competent. So suppose you're having a language exchange with uh, a Chinese person and their English is at a higher level than your Chinese is. Well, the temptation is going to be to speak English with them because you can effectively communicate. But so the way to hedge against that is to make a very clear boundary around the time and be like, All right, for the first 15 minutes here, we're only speaking Mandarin. And that's it. Don't, don't, fall into the trap of speaking English. Even you can even say like, not even for translating. If I don't understand something, try to explain it to me. You know, it's like, and that's, that's the real key. And also another thing with language exchanges is, uh, and this is just general for trying to have conversation when you're still in the learning phase is make sure that you try to explain what something is before you go to the dictionary. So tr fluency in a language is the ability to get across your point without having to pause every time uh, you don't understand something. And that doesn't mean knowing every vocabulary word, but it does mean being able to at least explain what it is. So the better you get at the language, the more complex things you can explain. And then once you've explained it, the person who's a native speaker will be able to say, oh, that's this. And then what's interesting is you will eventually reach a point where you're like, okay, all the basics in the language I kind of got because, you know, what I found, especially when I'm like working with Annie here, a lot of times I'll have a question about something related to computing. I'll be like, oh, how do they say uh, this this particular, you know, I don't know, uh, how to, this menu item in uh, PowerPoint or something. How do they say this in Chinese? And, uh, you know, of course, if I had my, if my computer set to Chinese, I can just find out that way. But let, just for the sake of this example. And she won't know because she'll just be like, oh, I'm not particularly computer savvy. So it's like once you reach that point, you realize, oh, yeah, specialization. I've reached the point of specialization where, sure, somebody who knows a lot about computers will know all these things. But they have to know about computers, which isn't something that's sort of at the basic level of the language. That's sort of a specialized uh, level of the language. And so uh, once you get to that point, then you're really cooking with gas. But for now, when you're in a language exchange, just be like, okay, I uh, – 
don't know how to say something, so I'm going to try to explain it a little bit. And if you are able to explain it uh, decently, then uh, you've succeeded in going through the language fluently without having to stop every time you run into a problem. Okay, a few more questions in the uh, miscellaneous category here. Deb Chen on the level, level 7 complete uh, lesson. He says, awesome motivation from you guys. Yes, yeah. And so I just, I love those motivational videos. I love these motivational talks. It's always important to recognize that there's nothing about this process that will, um, that's all that hard. The hard part is almost always just showing up every day. No zero days. Zero days off. <laughs> and I'm a big advocate for that because, and the, the, that's a juxtaposition I've talked about before. No zero days is a bit more, I guess you could say, compassionate towards yourself. You could say, okay, I can't, the, the lower limit is that I can't allow myself to do nothing. So the only sort of um, standard I'm going to have is just don't do nothing, which means one flashcard, hey, I did it, no zero days. I didn't do zero today. And then zero days off is a bit more like, um, I guess, uh, maybe that sort of in encouraging father type of attitude of like, you know, hey, you're not going to get to your uh, your goals if you don't, you know, suffer a bit and you don't push yourself and, you know, well, whatever, that type of thing. And so you have to have that kind of like Tao of the Tao of habits where you go, you have the compassionate, more like motherly side and you have the encouraging father side working together in tandem. And, uh, you know, I love that stuff because it actually works. It's made me motivated so much when I think about both of those things together. And so glad to hear that you're finding it to be the case too, Dev. That's actually really great to hear because I don't know sometimes. I record the video, I put it up there, and just hearing that you uh, find it motivational is great to hear. Pablo Prieri. All right, so this is a, this is a great... That's great. This is a new person. I don't think we've gotten a comment from Pablo before. How to develop great habits, study habits, part four, belief. That's a bonus video, so that's where he's leaving the comment. Great video, like the others said. I like a lot of these videos about language acquisition, commitment to the habit, and useful techniques. Well, yeah, another one where it's uh, that getting across that idea. And, you know, the belief, that video, the main point of that video, it's the fourth part of, you know, the four elements of, um, of habit, which, you know, is kind of like uh, triggering the habit. Uh, there's the routine, uh, and then there's the reward, and then there's the belief. And like belief is basically the recognition that there's there's really nothing that complicated about succeeding. It's just a matter of showing up every day. So you can show up every day. Believe it. Like you can, don't think that you can't do it. It's not a matter of you can't do it. The only question really is maybe, uh, you know, do you want to do it? Do you want to learn Chinese? And if that ever becomes, nah, I don't want to learn Chinese, then that's a reason not to do it. But can you do it should never be in question once you sort of get how habits work. It's like, yeah, you do this every day. There's no doubt about it. You know, you could do it with almost anything. It's like some things that are physical, okay, you might have some uh, limitations, you know, in some area. But, and I suppose if you had a really, really, really low IQ, you wouldn't be able to uh, handle language acquisition. But I mean... Even people with really low IQ speak language, so I don't even believe that. So it's like fundamentally, when you're talking about a, a, a you know sort of a intellectual pursuit or an academic pursuit, it's just a matter of continuing. And so yeah, like actually, even just thinking about the IQ thing again too. Even if you have a low IQ, the only thing that might indicate is that it maybe takes longer, but it doesn't mean it can't happen. So it's a again, it's a question of belief. Do you believe you can do it? Yes. Who cares if somebody else can do it faster than you or not? You can do it. It's just a matter of showing up every day and following the instructions. 
Jeffrey Herzog on Phase 3 Sample Lesson, Reading Chinese Characters Like a Boss. Jeffrey says, One thing I really like, uh, really enjoy about Mandarin Blueprint is that all the teachers seem so assured and confident. This makes me feel comfortable and confident that I can reach their level too. Well, hey, we're on this theme of belief today, and absolutely. I mean, like, hey, I did it. I am not a natural at acquiring language. I was in seventh grade and I did exploratory Spanish, German, French, and Latin. And it was the first time in school where I was like, oh, other, there are a lot of other people in this class that are way better at this than I am. You know, like usually I was sort of in the top maybe 20% of the class in like social studies or whatever. And I remember going into language classes and being like, this is not for me. I am just, I'm going to go English my whole life. And then <laughs> I realized, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that was dumb. <laughs> of course you can acquire language. It's just a matter of showing up every day and and not going on the wrong path. And so uh, because of that recognition, that's one of the actually huge motivations for me with Mandarin Blueprint. It's like, well, geez, if I could do it, then other people could definitely do it. Next, we have Dev Chen on It's a Word for Zhao, which is the character for to search for or find. And he says, question, Zhao, to look for, search, or find. And Zhao, want to see or call on. Is uh, is this correct? Is there a difference in the tone as indicated by the lesson? So we have Zhao as uh, the third tone for find and Zhao. But what's actually happening here is they're both third tone, but Dev just... Uh, forgot about the tone sandy rule for third tone, which basically is there's no such thing as two third tones in a row unless there's like a pause or something like that. If there's a comma or a pause for some reason, then it's possible to have two third tones in a row. But generally speaking, if you have a word or two words that are directly related and one is a third tone and the other one is also a third tone, the first of the two changes to second tone. So, uh, because ni and wo are both uh, third tones. So if you're going to put jiao in front of it, which means like to just, hey, call upon or, you know, um, it's kind of an interesting way of saying like, hey, I'm going to come uh, meet up with you tomorrow is I'm going to come find you. Right. So it's like jiao ni. And so it's just a matter of uh, the tone sandy rule. So you can't say jiao ni. You say jiao ni. Ni hao. Right? So that's how that works. That's a simple, simple question there. Good question, Dev, but it just comes down to that tone sandy rule. Basil Ackerman on Make a Movie for Ban. I think choosing horns, stick, and uh, and twins makes more sense if you care to learn the stroke order of Ban. Uh, which, because there's also the, op you could also pick um, horns, uh, Christian cross and razor blade. And this is an example. And basically what he's saying is that the stroke order of ban is more like horns, uh, uh, twins and stick. But the thing about that is that it doesn't really matter because they're both going to cause you to learn the character correct, correctly. So like, even though it's, you know, maybe more sensical to choose the, um, set of three that you chose there, Basil, which is perfectly fine. Um, Neither one is going to cause you to get the stroke order wrong because the stroke order is, it's sort of, in my experience, a separate part of your brain that gets the stroke order correct. So, like, it's just never really been an issue. Um, Ija on Make a Movie for um, 
which means to borrow or to lend. Just want to give a heads up to any of those who are aiming for HSK 5 or 6 um, and prefer scenes with as little props as possible. Uh, the right side component here, we broke it down into three components. Um, it, it's a common enough component in a few HSK characters that, in my opinion, worth having a prop on its own. And you can always uh, choose to do this. Like The, the way that we... Um, break down a character is not like canonical, this has to be this way. You can break it down another way if you want, just like we were talking about before with Ben. It's possible to break it down in a number of different ways. So uh, she said that, you know, there's a number of different characters here that use it, like and nice. I knew all of those. San and uh, sa also. And so she's pointing out that all these characters have this component, and so you could imagine it as potentially a prison wall, which I get, because at the bottom, it looks like a, maybe a brick wall, and the top is some barbed wire, if you could imagine it like that. And so she went with a prison wall. And so she's saying you could just add a new prop card to your Anki reviews, and you're good to go. So if any of you want to do that, uh, you can take a look uh, in the show notes to see some of these different characters that all contain this prop, and that's uh, perfectly fine to do. Nice. John Grist on It's a Word for Ma. I didn't see the measure word P used in any of the sentences here. So we had a few sentences. We have a... That one doesn't require a measure word because it's just a general question like, do they like horses? It's not counting any horses. So if you're not counting any horses, then you don't need a measure word. Uh, the next one is... Uh, that's just a statement... Um, you don't have to say this horse is, um, hungry necessarily. You can just say the horse hungry, horse hungry. Um, now the next one, this one is interesting. Now you could say, and this is the only one of the sentences where I, you, you know, my instinct says there should be a measure word there. But here's the thing: some very ancient characters, uh, they can, they'll actually dispense with the measure word just because it's almost like it's been in the language so long that you can sort of dispense with it. In the sense that if you're saying ma, you're almost definitely talking about a horse, and so it's not as necessary to have those. Uh, sort of auditory differences between them. And so, like, when people... All languages tend towards efficiency. They always want to try to tend towards that efficiency. And so, uh, with certain very ancient words, like ma, you'll see that uh, they will sometimes dispense with the measure word. It doesn't happen very much, but it does uh, does happen sometimes. And, like, here's another example. Uh, for possession, for example, you could just say, wo ma, to refer to your mom. Wo ma. As opposed to mama or mutin would be even more formal formal. But like you could just say Woma. And that's an example where they say that so often. Wotia, my house, my mom. If you say that so often, uh, then you'll you sometimes will dispense with certain grammatical categories. So that really just that's all it comes down to. Michael Murphy, this is the same guy from that first email, he says, on the casting call 2 of 55, you guys did a magnificent job, as I've said before. I know that it is better to create and associate one's own places, actors, props, sets, etc. However, I wonder if it would still be very effective if you simply chose these and gave the scene 
as you did with Lesson for Sure. It would seem to save you a lot of time and remove a lot of possible complexities for your users. Just a thought. And yeah, so it's basically the same question as before. Uh, it's you know, it really just comes down to we want people to be able to know how to use these mnemonic techniques because they're universally applicable. They're not just applicable to Chinese. So uh, we do want people to actually uh, be able to know how to do this without our just merely providing it for them. So we're going to have a um, some movie scenes in a moment. Uh, we have one more uh, miscellaneous question. Chris on It's a Word for Joel, which means uh, type or category. And he asks the question, can 我儿子的 and 我的儿子 be used in the same way, or do we use the one over the other because of grammar? Is one form preferred from native speakers over the other? So it looks like Chris is a little bit confused about this, which is good. I'm glad to see that this wasn't clear because we can maybe uh, plug this into that lesson, plug this little answer into that lesson and uh, make this clearer for people. So the sentence that he's referring to is a sentence that says, 我有, I have, 我有. 我儿子的这种电话，我有我儿子的这种电话，and so what that means is I have the what he's saying is I have a phone. That's the fundamental sentence. 我有电话，that's the basic subject verb object. I have phone. Okay, but everything that comes before 电话 is describing the phone. So I have 我儿子的电话. If it were just that, it would be like, I have my son's phone. 我儿子的电话. But we added in another bit there. I have my son's phone. I have 我有我儿子的这种电话. I have the my son's type of phone. Right, So it's not saying I have his literal phone. It's saying I have the same type of phone or the same model of phone as my son does. And so the, the original question was, can 我儿子的 and 我的儿子 be used in the same way? No, they're different because 我儿子的 is my son's something. My 我儿子的电话, my son's phone. 我儿子的这种电话, my son's type of phone. You could put all sorts of different modifiers in the Placing of de after de is indicating that the possession belongs to the son. Now, what's interesting is that in the, this particular sentence, he's saying yo. So he's also saying I have a possession, but de is another way of getting across that possession. So no, they're not the same. They're not the same. That's a good question, though. Okay, so let's talk about some course updates. So there are several things going on in the course right now, which are pretty exciting. One uh, is that we've started to post videos from the podcast that are relevant to the different points in the course. So if you are before level 13, there are now new videos uh, after level 13. We've had them uploaded between level 13 and 18, and we will be going through the whole course doing that. And so now there are videos there. So for many, not every single character, nor would it be necessary to have them for every single character. But a big bit of feedback that we got from people was, dang, you guys, after level 12, there's so few videos. And it's not, nobody said it's because it's a problem because they don't understand, but they just sort of missed having the videos and checking us checking in with you. So we're adding videos that were from previous podcasts 
where we answered uh, or shared a movie scene. And so now when you get to certain videos post level 13, some of them will have uh, responses that we did in previous podcasts. And from now on, after we record a podcast, or I should say, once our video editor catches up with the previous podcasts and catches up to the present, every new podcast that comes out, we will take those uh, sections, and if that particular lesson didn't have a video, we'll cut that section from the podcast and put it up as a video in the course, thus making everything much more fengfu, which means rich and uh, full of, rich and plentiful. <laughs> that's will make the course very fengfu. All right, nice. So that's one course update. Another course update, Mandarin Companion has set uh, sent us their... Um, their collected works, the Mandarin Companion graded readers, which have levels everywhere from where you know 150 characters to where you know 300 characters, 450 characters or so. So they're graded for, you know, sort of relatively beginner levels. Now, um, the what they consider to be 150 characters, those particular 150 characters aren't necessarily what we consider to be the first 150 characters that you should learn. So, but we're still going to integrate them into the course. And so here's how it works. Our agreement with Mandarin Companion is that we can use 40% of their content in the course free of charge. And so the idea is that if you like the story, then you can go purchase the Mandarin Companion book. And the Mandarin Companion books are great because they're actual books. They're copies of, uh, I mean, you can get an e-version of the book, I believe, but like it's an actual book you can have around in your house, which is great to just like leave lying around because the idea about uh, your environment is that you want your environment to increase the likelihood that you will come into contact with Chinese. As Katsumoto would say, if your ears are open and you don't hear Chinese, or if your eyes are open and you don't see Chinese, you can improve your environment. So uh, what's nice about having those books around is you can just throw them around the house, and then if you're just... Uh, you know, sitting sitting down one day and there's one of them in hand's reach, you might take a few minutes and take a look at it. So uh, here's how it's going to work. Since we can use 40% of their material, we're going to introduce their material in the course post-phase 5 when you're actually in story level. Uh, so this is levels 31 and on. And we'll introduce the uh, stories when you're ready to see them and specifically the first 40% of the stories. So we'll, there's like, they're broken down into sections. So we'll show you, okay, here's section one. Then maybe a few lessons later, here's section two. A few sections later, here's section three. That's about 40%. So here's all of it together. And if you want to go buy the book, you can, there's a link to go buy the book. So it's a great way to figure out whether or not you like the book and uh, also to know, oh, I'm ready for it because you we put the first bit of it in. It's not like the rest of the book is going to be totally different level. It's all meant to be the same level. So um, it'll be very good new material for you. It's going to expand our larger comprehensible input that's more engaging. And so this is going to be great. It's going to be awesome for you. And speaking of comprehensible input that's engaging, that leads to our next uh, update, which is that we have about 33 of the uh, eventual, I guess it's going to be 60, 63 lessons or sorry 63 well yeah it is going to be lessons but they're stories um we have 63 stories that we're going to be adding to the course in the intermediate level so thir levels 37 and beyond there's going to be three proprietary stories from mandarin blueprint uh from levels 37 to 57 per level and so 33 of them are ready from levels 37 I'm, i should say they're ready they've been written uh we still have to prepare the um 
audio files for them and there's still some work to do on them, but we're making great progress on it. So post level 37, you're going to have some great new reading material that's comprehensible, engaging, of course, and uh, it's going to make it even more exciting to keep progressing as you go through the course. It's uh, We just are so thrilled about the progress is being made in this and you know the the graduate students that have been helping us with this have been awesome so we're going to move into the movie scene shares so these are the full mnemonic scenes that uh, people shared to help uh, people on the course come up with a scene if they're struggling and so as we go through these you can just uh, decide maybe I want to use this as my scene for this particular character so the first one we have is for Abigail on make a movie for P which means skin. Her props are Dobby from Harry Potter, which is the right, uh, the sort of looks like an ear. And so she chose Dobby because Dobby's got big old ears. Samurai sword and a quill. So those are the three main props. Movie. My PI female actor, Preeti, is writing a description of Dobby using a quill. She starts to feel his skin and is amazed how rough and wrinkly it is. <laughs> Dobby finds this annoying and lashes out with a samurai sword, exclaiming, you're getting under my skin. Preeti gasps and starts apologizing profusely. I like this because it's got two usages of skin, the keyword, which is, um, you know, the keyword here is always the key to make sure, well, you get the keyword connection, the connection to something real. And then getting under my skin is a, you know, that's a, a feeling too. It's a phrase that represents a feeling when somebody's getting under your skin, but you also have the actual tangible skin from Dobby that she feels tactilely. So it's, it's a mnemonic that's used in the tactile sensation. That's great. And of course, um, what I would, what I would recommend is that as the preeti, the PI female actor, who by the way, should be in the kitchen of your childhood home, uh, is, writing the description of Dobby using the quill, really hear the quill writing and feel the quill against the hand so that you make sure that the quill is clearly involved. Because of the things that are, of the three props here, Dobby's very involved. The samurai sword obviously lashes out, so that's a uh, a strong moment, but the quill maybe could be forgotten. So just, you know, uh, make sure you feel some tactile response from the quill and we're ready to go. Under the skin and actual skin. Well done. Nice. Next, we have... John Grist on Make a Movie for S. So this is the character that means four. Steven Seagal, so that'll be his actors, in the bathroom of Childhood Home, I assume, fighting Cookie Monster and Long John Silvers, the pirate with a wooden leg. So Cookie Monster is a representation of Cull, which is the outer component. And then Long John Silvers' legs are the inner component. So Steven Seagal in the bathroom fighting Cookie Monster and Long John Silvers legs Stephen wins by killing them with a garden fork with four prongs so yeah forks they've got the mnemonic homophone to four uh and it's they usually have four prongs i mean there's three pronged forks but generally they're four prongs and so uh that's a quick connection the props are clear and the actor is correct so great excellent next we have jonathan pritchard on make a movie for this is the character for sun or day. My mentor Randy is a musician who had a gag. He'd write a note, today is the day I die, and sign the date every day. He thought it would be a hilarious gag, and he did that for years before stopping. So it's easy for me to imagine him walking into the bathroom where the Rolling Stones' mouth is getting ready. Randy has a razor blade and says, 
this is the day, and then slices the mouth in half horizontally. Gruesome, but personally difficult to forget. Yeah, that's the type of thing where your scene is directly correlated to a real thing in your life. And when that happens on such a uh, deep level where it's like, oh, I, that was this weird gag this guy did every day and he was my mentor. Uh, obviously not every scene is going to play itself out so easily like that. But when it does, it's just, as you say, difficult to forget. That's the best situation. Oh, that's not just easy to remember. That's difficult to forget. And when you get to that point, you're going to, you have the character forever. So next, we have Abigail on Make a Movie for Man, which is really only taught to teach you the next character, which is also pronounced Man. Uh, but we don't like to have four components in one character, so we teach this one so that we can make the full thing a component. But it is actually uh, a character that's used in the um, Chinese word for Manhattan, Manhattan, which is Manhattan. So that man in Manhattan is this particular character. And the first thing she asks is, did you create a new prop for the middle component here? Which is, uh, it's kind of like a horizontal version of the character uh, for I, Mu, um, but it's turned on its side. Or did I miss this a while ago? So what we just suggested was that you just take that, the eye and turn it. Now later we're going to use this prop more and we're going to suggest that you use it as a net because it kind of looks like a, a tennis net or a badminton net. But at this point in the course, because we weren't going to use it for anything else, we were like, okay, just take the eye component and flip it on its side. So here's her scene. Uh, Teletubby's son. Oh yeah, isn't the Teletubby's son like a... Uh, I never watched the Teletubbies, but I think I've seen it in like, you know, just various cultural references that the son is like a face. Like, there's a guy's face there. Anyway, so the Teletubbies' son, Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc., and Billy Piper as Doctor Who's companion. So that's the uh, character that means uh, again or right hand. And so we said, okay, right hand, right hand man. And so you can come up with Doctor Billy Piper being Doctor Who's companion is Doctor Who's right hand man. And then uh, we've got the Teletubbies' son and Mike Wazowski. So there are our props. It's sunny, so Billy Piper, wearing a sun hat and sunglasses, is going to Manhattan for a holiday. And she's looking forward to seeing something on Broadway. Mike wants to go, too, so he lies sideways in her suitcase, hoping she won't notice. <laughs> nice. So we've got uh, all of that going. And, of course, the Telet I assume that the sun is the Teletubby's son. And she's got the sun hat, uh, sun hat and sunglasses yeah, also getting across that. And we're going to Manhattan. That's great. Um, obviously there's no mention of the, uh, actor here. We don't have a male actor in the bathroom of the AN set, the male M actor, but Abigail's been doing this long enough that I'm sure that she does actually have that. And she's just getting that across. So, but you could take that as fodder for this one, this idea of, um, going on a trip to Manhattan and Mike Wazowski is like sitting inside of the suitcase, uh, trying to you know, not be noticed. If that works for you, just make sure you add in your M male actor and have the scene start from the bathroom of the AN set or the backyard of the AN set. All right, this next one ought to be interesting. We've got uh, William Edmeides on Make a Movie for Pay. Pay, which means to match, like socks match or da pay is to match some something up together. Uh, and actually, it is the character used for if you match somebody on Tinder, which is uh, William's idea here. So his actor is his uh, Auntie Pam um, for P. 
and the location is the bathroom of his friend Faye's house. I will just make a point here that normally the P for uh, when you have P and it's not P-I or not P-U, it's just P by itself followed by the final. It's usually a male actor, but I know that William is so good at this method that he just made an exception here for his Auntie Pam, probably because she's very uh, iconic in his uh, personal life and he's not going to get it confused with his P-I female actor. Uh, so actor Auntie Pam... Location, bathroom of my friend Faye's house, because Faye sounds like a pay. So we have our pronunciation there. Props are a giant bourbon glass on the left and Indiana Jones uh, on the right, because he hates snakes and snakes are the, uh, the this particular character is like a snake skin. All right. My Aunt Pam recently matched with someone on Tinder. Her Tinder date told her to meet him in the bathroom of Faye's house. <laughs> Oh, that's perfect. Upon entering the bathroom, she discovers that none other than Indiana Jones was standing there. <laughs> he then offers Pam the giant shot glass in his hand. After that, the two spend the rest of the night together as a match made in heaven. Well, wonderful. That is such a good scene. Such a strong cultural trope association with Tinder. It's so fun how this is an example of how you couldn't have even done that scene uh, when I was learning characters, because Tinder wasn't really a thing yet, or if it was a thing, I wasn't aware of it. And so it's like, uh, that's an example of how you can use even the most modern of uh, sort of mnemonic fodder to get your scenes very memorable. That's great. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Okay. Next, we have Heather Kimpton on Make a Movie for Nian, which means year. My friend Nia is in the kitchen of my old apartment in Xi'an. So there we go. We got our pronunciation done and dusted there. And, of course, Xi'an, An, Nian. So, like, we got the uh, A-N there. And then, of course, kitchen is second tone, Nian. Nia is a representation of N-I. It's very dirty, but she's being polite as usual. Next to her is a two-tier afternoon tea stand instead of cowboy boots because we're celebrating. So the two-tier uh, afternoon tea stand is her representation of which is sort of the central component for this character. Uh, because we're celebrating our one-year friend anniversary. <laughs> nice, Heather. Suddenly, both the two tiers start to wobble. If it falls apart, we won't have anything to mark this one-year milestone. I grab my giant razor blade and slam it into the stem of the cake platter, but this obviously does nothing to help. Nia sees Gandalf's broken staff in the corner and rams it upright between the wobbling platter and razor blade. Everything immediately stops wobbling. Nia picks up the weird mishmash of objects and smiles. Now we can celebrate our year of friendship, which is the meaning of the character, the one-year friend anniversary. Uh, of course, a thing that we all do, right? And uh, <laughs> and then, of course, I love the... Uh, this scene makes sense. The logic of the scene is internally consistent. So, you know, it's like the the two-tiered uh, afternoon tea stand is going to break. We need to do something about it. Well, what can we use to do something about it? The razor blade and the uh, Gandalf staff. So everything has a purpose. It's involved. The razor blade, ah, oh, it's not enough. We need something else. Oh, Gandalf staff. Okay, good. We, get, we got it. Did it. Now, here's to... An anniversary, an anniversary means yearly, so you got the idea there. Perfect. Excellent scene, Heather. And that's only character number 14, so that means you're really starting to get it. J.A. on Make a Movie for Tian. So this means simple. In the living room of my A.N. set, I have created an elaborate, complex Rube Goldbergian clock. It's a, it is a room-filling bamboo scaffolding structure with levers and swing arms and balls rolling down inclined planes, etc., etc., 
As I stand appreciating my own genius creation, my J.I. actress enters. Seeing it all, she rolls her eyes, removes it all with a sweep of her hand, and places a metronome in the center of the room. Simple, she indicated, indicates a, a ta-da gesture. So I suppose this complex Rube, Goldberg, Rube Goldbergian clock was meant to keep time, and uh, in, in the sense of like uh, musically. And of course, the metronome comes in, which is a simpler version of that. And that's the idea, contrast. So the way that Jay got this across is he took the elements of the character and then said, okay, the bamboo structure represents a part of it. Um, the interval is it must be doo, 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 doo. maybe the clock could be the interval i'm not sure if that was the uh prop there let me see bamboo scaffolding stru- structure with le- levers and swing arms and balls rolling down inclined planes that's definitely the bamboo part so i'm assuming that the other prop is the clock itself okay so um and that's fine because clocks uh, keep track of intervals which is the lower Lower part, we got the J.I. actress, and we're in the living room of the A.N. set, which gets the third tone, so that's all there. So everything's there, and then the idea is that we have the contrast of a very complicated, super complex type of uh, situation, and then it gets contrasted to the simple, which helps you get across the meaning. Contrast is one of the best ways to get across uh, meaning ever, so, you know, that makes perfect sense. Now, finally, we'll finish up with a set suggestion and several prop suggestions, and then we'll be good to go for today. So, B. Foster on Set the Scene for EN. Uh, I was having trouble with the EN set as well, but I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I've chosen the Star Trek Enterprise, too. Nice. Engaging warp drive now. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. And so, like, whenever you can come up with something like that, that's a great way to... Uh, come up with a set, and of course, the, if you are aware of the different rooms in the Starship Enterprise, that's perfectly fine, and you can have a fictional place like that. It's, our minds are so good that we can imagine ourselves in a fictional room and still have it be incredibly uh, potent. Next, we have some props. Makai Albert on pick a prop for new uh, heels, high heels, sure, because news uh, just means uh, female, and so uh, picking something that's classically a female uh, object. River Nixon on pick a prop for yeah. I used a big pink page pager in my last movie, so that was what my prop will be. A big pink pager. Sure, absolutely. That's very clear. Uh, and, of course, this means page, so using a pager makes perfect sense. Kenneth Morgan on pick a prop for Lee. A Van de Graaff generator. Okay, sure, yeah. I don't know what a Van de Graaff generator is. I think I've heard of it before, but I've forgotten. Uh, but I'm sure that it's something that has to do with power, because that's the character. So nice, excellent. William Edmides on Pick a Prop. Uh, this is for the top. It doesn't have a pronunciation, but it's the top part, which has a little top hat and an elbow. It's basically top hat and elbow combined. Going with nappies or diapers, as they are known in the U.S., sure. Because it kind of means infant, so you could have, imagine some nappies. and Maybe they're walking, talking nappies or diapers. Makai Albert on pick a prop for C. Monkey King from Journey to the West. Absolutely. Journey to the West is the connection there because C means West and then Monkey King. Perfect. Elena Dana Koroian on pick a prop for Da King Kong. Dot means big. King Kong's big. Simple. No need to get too complicated. William Edmides on pick a prop for Tsi. Uh, it almost looks like someone on stilts. Probably not a good prop by itself, but I hope it inspires someone else. I, it does look like someone on stilts, and why not? I mean, someone on stilts is hilarious. Now, you might want to 
figure out who it is, but uh, on the other hand, it could maybe just be uh, just some random guy on stilts. Connor Griffith on pick a prop. Uh, this again is a a, um, a prop that doesn't have a pronunciation, but we basically have three strokes uh, followed by a little covering stroke. The stro- it's three strokes on top, and then uh, a sort of lid type of section. Kind of looks like a, um, a sort of headdress is what we suggest. And he says a rainbow helicopter hat. Excellent. That's perfectly fine. Rainbow, those rainbow helicopter hats are, first of all, really easy to spot. And, of course, I like to imagine that if the, the propellers started moving fast enough that they would actually gain liftoff. Connor, again, on pick a prop for Dong, which means winter, Santa's sleigh. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, you could even add with that prop some um, Christmas music to go along with it. Uh you know, of course, sleigh bells comes to mind. Uh, well, as soon as I imagine it, just uh, <laughs> I used to play that in band class all the time, and so uh, that that works perfectly. And so a prop can bring along with it some music to make it even more memorable. That's perfectly fine. Pick a prop for uh, for Ling, which means. Um, Sort of, it can mean to command somebody to do something, uh, or it can it's also the main component in the character for Bell. There's a few different things. One of those spiked receipt holders you sometimes see at restaurants. Okay, yeah, nice. So they're orders, right? Because it can mean to order. So here are the here's the spiked receipt holder of all the orders that came in. So perfectly good. That's great. Awesome. Connor Griffith again on pick a prop for Zhu. High heels on my actor. So this is actually, so somebody else picked heels to represent nu. And that's because uh, that's, heels are generally associated with females, but heels also go on feet, which is what zu represents. So that's an interesting thing how, you know, Connor will have something else for nu and then have the high heels on the feet of the actor for zu. William Amides on pick a prop for this is sort of what we call liquor bottle because uh, it's the right side of the component for uh, for alcohol and it also kind of looks like a bottle and he says for some reason this prop has always reminded me of a bourbon glass with something being poured into it so I'm going to go with a bourbon glass so and I like how he's saying for some reason as opposed to you know uh, I think you could make the case that it does look like that but he makes the good point that Sometimes you don't know why an association is the way it is, but it just is. So when that happens, you might as well go with it. Finally, Rebecca Weeble on Pick a Prop for Tun. She says calipers combines the meaning and the appearance because calipers can measure things, which is what this character means. It means a Chinese inch or a measurement, a form of measurement. And, of course, uh, it calipers do kind of look like this particular uh, component, so that works perfectly. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions whatsoever, you can let us know at contact at mandarinblueberry.com or in the Mandarin Blueberry community. And if you'd like to have a question addressed on the podcast, you can send it over to podcast at mandarinblueberry.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week.